The information provided in this show is intended for your general knowledge only and is not intended to be, nor is it, medical advice or a substitute for medical advice. If you have or suspect you have a specific medical condition or disease, please consult your health care provider. Now listening to The Health Hero Show with Tim James. <laughs> What's up, Health Heroes? Tim James here, founder of ChemicalFreeBody.com and your host for the show that simplifies and demystifies how to live an energetic life with a flat belly. So if you're into a healthy gut and staying young, then this is the show for you. What's up, Health Heroes? Tim James here. Another exciting episode of The Health Heroes Show. Today in the house, I have Hope Schachter. Hope is in the bathroom of her daughter's ICU um, and she has quite an amazing story. I was actually one of the first people to hear about her story. Um, uh, a nurse that I coach um, actually runs a, a, pro, a, a program called Remnant, Remnant Nursing. That's at remnantnursing.org. I'll drop it in the chat below. Her name's Kimberly Overton. And Kimberly was a nurse that broke uh, free of the hospitals um, as an RN because she realized that um, the medical system was broken and that she needed to take matters into her own hands. And so they've created an entire um, uh, like a membership service for people to get nurses and nurse advocates and, and people. Uh, you could actually hire yourself privately to help you heal, to get healed and get well or to help you navigate the hospitals because you literally need somebody to help you navigate hospitals. You can get sucked into these systems. And if you don't do what you're told, um, you can lose privileges and all of a sudden your loved ones are whisked away. And um, we, we're seeing more and more of that. And that's why uh, we had Hope on. So Kimberly's, I'm telling me all about it. We have this call scheduled and Kimberly's just uh, a mess. She's just like a mess because of what happened to um, Hope's daughter, Autumn, who is four years old. She's telling me all about it. And I'm like, Mal, I'd, I'd, wow, I'd really like to help out any way I can. She's like, well, we need to get this story out to as many people as possible. And so, you know, that's why we scheduled um, Hope to come on and tell her her story and her story of her daughter's story or her husband's story, um, Billy. And she also has two other little uh, children, too. She has uh, Valor, who is a he's about one year, eight months. And um, their newborn, uh, Rev Reverly. I hope I said that right. Reverly. <laughs> and uh, so three, three children. Hardworking mom. Uh, she was a uh, she's she 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 was a uh, she's a nutritionist, and she's also um, a family a, mar a marriage and family therapist. And her practice, and her husband's a military officer in the Army Reserve, and he's also a police officer. Um, so you know, good, hardworking, you know, working class folks doing good things out there. And now she's in a, a, a basically an emergency situation with her daughter at the hospital. And she wants to get the story out to as many people. And so we're going to give her our platform to do that. And so, Hope, I want to welcome you to the show. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on and um, for sharing Autumn's story. Yeah, so let's go back um, right before the hospital uh, experience. What was your life like in your daily life of you and your husband and your three children? Um, I'm, you know, uh, actually, I, I stay home with my children now. I have since, um, since, uh, my daughter was born. Uh, she was born shortly before COVID. And so once that happened, um, I didn't really want to move move to online work. And so I've been home with my babies and um, we do a lot of uh, outdoor activities and, um, you know, just cooking together. And um, my husband, you know, he works long days, uh, but yeah, we're just, we're just a pretty content little family and 
Autumn is just this magical big sister. Uh, she's so incredibly helpful and she's obsessed with animals. I know most little girls are obsessed with princesses, but she loves animals. So we spend a lot of time outdoors. Do you guys have any animals? We do. We have two very big Akitas, uh, but we live in a mountain area, a rural mountain area. And so there's owls and tons of deer and probably have like 40 turkeys. No, oh, cool. That sounds that sounds pretty cool. So you got a little bit of nature yeah. there. No, no wonder she loves it so much. Yeah. Okay, so why don't you just let's just get into it. So what happened? How did Autumn end up in the hospital? And um, and then you can just kind of walk us through why you're actually in the bathroom right now, trying to get this message out about what what's going on with these hospital protocols that are what they're what your your daughter's dealing with and what your family's sure sure. Um, so I'll just kind of get started and, and keep going through the timeline and you can stop me with any questions sure. that are no So no um, it's a bit of a long story uh, for her medical mismanagement. Um, so uh, my son probably about a month ago had uh, diarrhea. Um, it lasted a few days and he was in great spirits. Uh, he was fine. So uh, that uh, probably within maybe two days that, that weekend, my daughter pointed to her tummy and she said that it it hurt where her colon was, but she couldn't go to the bathroom. And uh, we're actually fire victims in California. And so she has a very uh, sensitive constitution and nervous system. And so she's uh, struggled with, you know, constipation before in the past. And so I said, well, this is one of two things, right? It's kind of that or um, or she's gotten one of her. Wait a minute, you guys, your house burned down? Yeah, so we actually, the structure was still standing, which we were able to sell, but we lost all of our belongings to um, smoke, soot, and ash damage. So we were in this weird camp where, like, everything was deemed a biohazard, but, um, you know, we were we were able to, to sell what was left of the home. And so um, we did wind up in a lot of temporary housing situations, uh, and it was really stressful on her when she was about a year old. Yeah, so... Um, so yeah, she's always kind of reading the room and and what's happening. And so uh, I didn't know if maybe, you know, brother not being, you know, in the best shape in terms of all this diarrhea or um, just just kind of her little personality, just being sensitive if something was going on with that um, or if it was or if it was her getting sick. So uh, the next day after that happened, she wound up, um, she threw up uh, and she maybe within a couple hours started having diarrhea every 20 minutes so it was around the clock every 20 minutes nobody was sleeping um and um so we took her on day three to urgent care and they heard about her brother and just sent us her a stomach bug so after two more days uh it's been five days now of diarrhea every 20 minutes we go back to urgent care and they said that uh you know there was potential indication of intussusception, which is a um, small prolapse that occurs in the intestines or the colon, and the weight to resolve it is with an enema. But in order to get diagnosed and treated with an enema, you have to go to the emergency room for a pediatric CT scan or ultrasound. So we decided to go to the ER because the symptoms for intussusception are literally diarrhea every 15 to 20 minutes and what they term um, jelly stool, which at that point, my daughter didn't have much left in her, um, you know, tons of fluids, but she wasn't really eating. And so uh, it was kind of like dry heaving, but the opposite way. And so, you know, when we heard jelly stools, we were like, well, it maybe kind of sits because um, that's all that she's got left, you know. 
And so we went to the emergency room and we were told that she did not have intussusception. Um, at urgent care, they wouldn't take the cultures for um, urine or uh, or stool because uh, they wanted them separate, which is hard for a four-year-old when you have diarrhea. So uh, we were able to uh, fill up a urinalysis cup that they had given us, um, which I was surprised um, because she you know, has been having diarrhea. I even said to my husband, like, I'm surprised she could fill that up. Um, even when I was pushing fluids, I thought she would be more dehydrated. But, um, you know, they had given us that urinalysis cup at urgent care and said to take it with us to the hospital and she filled it up just fine. So, you know, we're kind of watching her urine output that at that time, and she was doing better than I would have thought. Um, but when they diagnosed her with the E. coli infection, we were told that at their emergency room in Santa Cruz, they do not treat pediatric E. coli, and we would have to go to the local children's hospital. Um, and so uh, I've actually worked at Lucille Packard uh, a long time ago, or maybe eight or 10 years ago, and I don't particularly like teaching hospitals um you know they try to make it sound like children's hospitals weren't specialized but actually people are learning their specialties they are not specialized um and so a little bit concerned but the emergency room said that they had consulted with lucille packard and they were advised to give a diuretic um now i i would go on to learn once we got to lucille packard that the reasoning is that they claim um, she had a syndrome based on her lab work called HUS, which is where kidney function is starting to decline based on the fact that they believe that the E. coli, as it breaks down, starts to release a toxic byproduct that um, impacts the kidneys functioning. And so um, in order to uh, sort of combat that or maybe try to halt that process for that syndrome, they like to flush the kidneys as much as possible to get rid of that byproduct. Um, I would later go on to learn that Lasix, which is the drug that, drug that she would be given, um, actually has a risk for uh, kidney damage and renal failure. So um, I didn't know that at the time, but I thought, you know, diuretics, okay. Um, I guess what they're saying, uh, you know, is is founded like like that that that's you know something they seemed assured about um at least in santa cruz because that's what they were being advised um but i was informed that it's very forceful so it will work within an hour but usually around the 15 to 20 minute mark um, patients don't typically even make it to the restroom in order to to go to the bathroom to urinate um and uh, when she did wind up seeing the effects of it, uh, I remember being kind of alarmed at how much diarrhea and how much urine came out of her. Like she hasn't eaten uh, much. I don't know where that's even coming from. And then and then just so much urine output for such a small child. Um, and when they went to transfer us to Lucille Packard, um, she had been wearing cloth diapers just because di diarrhea every 20 minutes. I mean, that's that's a lot to manage when you live in a rural area when you're being transported anywhere. We can't pull over every 20 minutes. So, um, you know, she's wearing cloth diapers. And when we arrived at Lucille Packard, she had actually wet through the cloth diaper through her pants. So still a lot of urine output. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm kind of keeping track of that in my head is that she's urinating a lot for a child that's had diarrhea for, for five days um, and no IV fluids at that point. So, um, when we get to Lucille Packard, um, it's not like we were met with, um, uh, you know, reassurance or comfort. Uh, and I understand when something is, you know, potentially life-threatening, you want to convey that to the parents. But 
we were told, um, you know, she'll be the case study of the week, which is an, a concern of mine at a teaching hospital. And then additionally, they're saying in front of her, like, you're aware she could die, um, which she's, you know, grabbing onto me and saying, hold me, hold me. Um, and I'm asking for everyone to really bring their nervous systems down because my child is not going to respond well in terms of healing when she's being pumped with adrenaline and cortisol from the way that, that these things are being discussed in front of her. Um, and so, uh, you know, I would have expected a conversation to maybe say something like, you know, um, this is a potentially life threatening condition, but we're going to do our best to, you know, uh, stop it in its tracks. Uh, and hopefully reverse it, right? There's a way to to speak with parents that um, can convey the seriousness of a condition without um, without instilling instilling fear, which is which is also a form of coercion. We'll we'll get into that because that that continues. Um, and so their protocol is to sort of do this cocktail of diuretics. So they start with a much stronger dose of Lasix. Um, and then they add in diurel, which is another fast-acting diuretic. And um, they come to me and they want to add in aminophilin based on some of her lab numbers. And I said, you know, my daughter's never even taken Tylenol. Um, could, could we pace these? And I'm told that I am resistant to her treatment. And do I have her safety in mind? Um, and so we proceed with the aminophilin and my daughter um, winds up throwing up blood. Um, and that happens one more time before they uh, they stopped using the aminophilin. Um, so we get to a point where, I, like, I'm watching as all this is happening that her urine output is declining, um, even with even with an IV, right? Um, and so uh, we get to a place where she's not having any urine output, um, and they tell me that the next step will to be to move her to the ICU and to do a constant Lasix strip which will be rotated with Fumex, which is its equivalent, um, and add in diarel. Um, but in order to do that, she would need to receive a catheter. And I'm confused because, you know, A, that's really traumatic for a four-year-old, but if she's having no urine output, and I express this, why wouldn't they do bladder scans? And then if she's if she has urine, but she's not peeing, then maybe a catheter would be warranted. Um, but I'm told that that is the standard of care that if I, you know, am not willing to comply, then I will be, uh, we won't be welcome in the ICU. And if she does need dialysis, which at this point, she, her kidneys are obviously not functioning, she's not having any urine output, um, that we will have to be medevaced to some other hospital for her to get dialysis. So again, we're feeling very um, forced into our decision-making regarding our daughter and, um, you know, just the total lack of trauma-informed care at this point is alarming. Um, uh, so around this time, we're sadly moving up to the ICU. We're, you know, in compliance with what their recommendations are. Um, when we first got here, because now we're starting to look at dialysis, um, I started asking about the risk for her to need a transfusion, and we're expressing that we want my, my husband's blood to to be able to donate to her and we're told that takes a long time it takes like five to seven days you know the turnaround is a while um but we'll have them contact you today and that's morning and night so that's happening for you know a couple days um leading up to where she does wind up actually um requiring a transfusion um and you know once we have done this drip for a while we're not getting anything and to my absolute 
frustration. They actually take out the catheter and say that it was um, an infection risk, which was a concern of mine. Um, and then they want to proceed with dialysis. So um, in order to get dialysis, when you're not necessarily going to be a long-term uh, patient, requiring that they put a port in your neck. It's actually called a neck catheter, but it's a port for dialysis. Um, and uh, they start telling us about her need for a transfusion. And my husband and I are very upset um, because they're pushing the blood bank blood when we have been trying to get his blood um, drawn. And so my husband finally calls the supervisor of their direct donor lab and is told that he can get in within 30 minutes and the turnaround time is three days or less. So, you know, we're, we're pretty angry at that point that we have been um, potentially misinformed intentionally. I'm not sure uh, because if they had called, wouldn't they have gotten that same information? Why would they tell us otherwise? Um, and so, well, they do it all day long. Oh, um, you know, it, it makes no sense. Like that, that's that's well, all day long. Well, yes and no, but we later come to find out in the discussions when they start to threaten a court order that supposedly we're the we're the first parents that have been so pushy about direct donor blood, and that it's outside of their standard of care. They always just use um, uh, red Red Cross. So. And I do potentially believe that that's sad that so many parents would not be concerned because this is not about just, you know, some of the things that maybe your audience is concerned about. But when you are um, when you are receiving blood uh, from a blood bank, you sign away all liability at the hospital and you assume all risks. IV, but also, you know, I'm, I haven't donated blood in a while, but I'm curious about the lifestyle and the immune system of a person that is going to be sharing body fluids with my daughter. Like, do they smoke? Do they drink? Like, what kind of lifestyle do they live? I don't know that. And even if it wasn't my husband that was donating, like, I would rather a friend, right? I would find that less risky. And that's what I'm, that's what I'm expressing is that, you know, I'm, I'm assuming all risk here for my child's health and, and I would want their support in making that risk minimized, right? Um, but that didn't seem to be the case. Uh, as she, you know, requires dialysis and they go to put in the port in her neck, I expressed to the attending that I do not want a student performing on my child. I don't want a surgery performed by a resident. And I'm told that a fellow would have to do it, but that the attending would be right next to the fellow. Um, and so that's, you know, kind of my only option at that point. So my husband uh, stays just outside the room and I take my toddler and my newborn down to, um, you know, the lower level and, and kind of get some wiggles out and then come back upstairs to switch out. And my husband um, tells me that, uh, you know, that the, the fellow is still in the room, but the attending is in the hallway um, at the nurse's station. And I see her, she's not in the room um, and that they have, um, they made the line too long. They had to unsuture it uh, and shorten it and research resuture it, and that's what the fellow is doing right now. So the fellow is performing this without the attending present, clearly. So, so I'm upset again, but at this point, I just want to, um, you know, move forward with the dialysis so that my daughter is safe. Now, when they were recommending that Lasix drip, all the drips, and she wasn't having any urine output at that point anyway, I've actually asked them, like, should we just if the trajectory is going to lead us to dialysis, should we 
not continue to aggravate the kidneys, right? Her her system was already under the assault of an infection. Does it make sense to um, throw more medications that are forceful and potentially risk um, making her kidneys angrier? Um, and I was met with, you know, all about the risks of dialysis. And I understand that, but, you know, they're telling me some children don't ever resume full kidney function. Um, and, you know, something I expressed to them is that, you know, well, you can say that that's the progression of the disease, which they describe the syndrome as, you know, a roller coaster. It's an up and down, a back and forth, and, you know, nothing is like a just a straight line to healing. Um, and I say, well, you're throwing all these medications with these risks. And what if those children that don't get the optimal kidney functioning back, what if it's actually a side effect of the protocol that you use? Like you're going to point to the syndrome. I'm going to point to the medication and neither of us can prove each other wrong. Um, and so, you know, we're in the state of dialysis now and I'm, I'm concerned that maybe we've, maybe we've made, uh, you know, her kidneys more upset than they needed to be. Um, but we want to start the dialysis treatment. So, um, uh, at the first treatment, she starts to have bleeding at the site of the port and we're told by the um, dialysis nurse that it needs to be tightened and re-sutured. Um, so obviously it wasn't performed adequately the first time, which is concerning. Um, so, uh, you know, kind of moving forward with dialysis, it's all about this port and issues with the port, right? So they wind up trying to do the, the tightening or resuturing. Um, she actually wakes up during that procedure when they're using propofol. I hear her scream, um, at least I'm pretty sure it was at least twice. Um, but they, you know, put her right back out. But right. So I'm looking at this through the lens of trauma as a, as a therapist and I'm concerned. Um, but they keep having to do dressing changes and, you know, cause she's bleeding so much from it and trying to get it to coagulate. And around this time they're saying that, you know, okay, we need the blood transfusion. She's losing blood here. Right. Um, and so, uh, we haven't reached that three day turnaround. And so they're saying they're threatening a court order to give her blood bank blood. Um, and, uh, my husband calls the, uh, direct donor, uh, lab and says, you know, it is like death. Like how soon can you get my blood here? And they say, we can get it to you by 6 PM. So obviously that's a relief, but why is my husband the one making that happen? Why is it not a medical team? Why would they not call the lab? They're, they're threatening a court order. Why wouldn't they call the lab and say it's an emergency, right? That's, that's alarming to me, um, that they would that they would push their own maybe agenda um, instead of helping to partner with us to get us the blood that carries the least amount of risk. Um, yeah, what happened to the customer's always right? Right, right. Um, like, and just the idea of informed consent. I don't know who this donor is, right? You're like basically you're, you're, signing. They're, they're getting paid. You're, you're paying them, you know? Yeah, I know, but they don't treat it that way, you know? Um, so, uh Anyway, um, you know, sadly, uh, we do a few dialysis treatments. Now this, this line in her neck, even with the transfusion, which they actually wound up having an issue with the dialysis machine and were, they weren't able to give my daughter all of my husband's blood, which was very upsetting in the moment, um, but her eating numbers did elevate. So she did get some benefit from that. Uh, and we wound up working with some organizations like blessed by his blood and pure blood registry, um, where I think can, you can talk with you know, the, the direct donors, um, and, you know, see how comfortable you are with people and, and, um, and yeah, so that was, we were grateful for that. And we had a couple of friends who were willing to donate too. 
And at one point during the transfusion process, they said, well, what are you going to do if she needs more? And I said, well, I, my daughter's a universal receiver. Like I can have people we know and we're comfortable with to donate. So it's just a lot of combativeness around this. Um, and so, uh, you know, we continue with the dialysis treatments. Um, they know all my concerns around blood products. Um, and at some point, you know, I've asked all these questions about what's in the dialysis machine or that's a bag of saline, right? All that sort of stuff. And they're sort of taking things out of the dialysis machine and they lay a bag of albumin on the bed. And I said, what, what is that? Um, and they said, well, she's been receiving that in her dialysis treatments. It goes in the machine. So you don't have to consent to it, even though it's a blood product. So, you know, I tried <laughs> all night in the bathroom and I asked why I wouldn't have to consent to that. And supposedly it carries less risk um, than your standard transfusion blood. Um, and I was curious then, oh, does it have a preservative? Like, how is that the case? And they said, well, it doesn't have a pre preservative. They use aluminum. So mm, great. Yeah. Um, so just, you know, beyond upset at that point. Um, but, you know, I just want to get my daughter better at this point and get her out of, out of their care. Um, so, uh, you know, we proceed. The alternative to albumin is actually saline, uh, which was very upsetting. Uh, so we proceed by using saline, but the port is still bleeding all the time and it is causing so much trauma. I mean, I am begging for them to give her out of van as they're doing the dressing changes. They have to clean it with alcohol. They use coagulants to try to, try to stop the bleeding. And the body is not going to heal your kidneys when it thinks it has this open wound at this major artery, right? So it's sending up blood saying, what's going on here? Um, and she won't move. She is literally like this on the bed. She will not move. She asked me if she's bleeding. She's so scared that they're going to do these dressing changes. Um, and uh, the whole left side of her ear and her face is all inflamed and sweaty. Um, and they're asking me, like, can she try to pee? Now, she's always been, I call her my camel, where I have to prompt her to pee. She probably drink really early. She doesn't wet the bed. Like, she's, you know, one of those kids I have to say, okay, sit down and go pee. And she does, but she wasn't going to move like that. I knew she would never pee like that. Um, and so, you know, our concerns are starting to to really ramp up around this cord in her neck. And it gets to a point where one night I am restraining her for two hours while she is screaming while they try to redress it, get the bleeding to stop. Um, and it's just, it's endless. It's torture for my child. And every time she screams, it squeezes and she bleeds more, right? Because just that's what happens when you, when you cry. Um, and so then she con still continues to bleed out onto her bed during the night. And the next morning she is screaming, take it out, take it out. And so we tell the doctors, they, you know, it's a weekend and they want the OR team from the week to be in there instead of having to be called in, um, that they're the long-term, uh, option for dialysis treatment is a port in the chest similar to chemotherapy and that's what we're comfortable with that we want them to take it out right away and if she needed emergency dialysis in the middle of the night then we understand they'd have to use her neck for that but she would be you know intubated and sedated for something like that um, and so otherwise we want to do the tunneled line the next day and so uh, they agree uh, to take out the port in her neck and within an hour she wakes up from that and she pees so it's not a lot of urine, um, but obviously I think getting this resolved, her body felt safe enough to like, okay, we're going to start to come back on Lily. 
Um, so, you know, I had sat her up and prompted her and she went, um, but, uh, it wasn't enough urine to the team and, um, so her numbers are, you know, continuing to elevate and they want to start the protocol from when we got there. Um, which at that point I'm, I'm not comfortable. I've learned that, you know, Lasix sort of works by this electrolyte exchange that happens in the tubules of the kidneys that lets the kidneys know you're not doing your job. So I'm going to do it for you. I'm going to do something different. And what it does is that, you know, it creates like this mass flushing through that electrolyte exchange where it, um, it creates inflammation by, you know, aggravating what would normally be the protective mucus in those tubules. So I don't want to go that route because I think it's too forceful. I think it's too aggressive, um, especially for something that is just waking up a tiny bit. Like it wasn't much urine, you know, but she is continuing to urinate. And so um, I asked for some time and they offer to, you know, give it a little bit of time. Um, and we do start to see a little more urine output, but not a ton. And they come to me and they say that she needs to, um, she needs to be drinking fluids. She's not getting enough fluids. Even though she's got an IV, they want me to push fluids. So she's telling me she's not thirsty and I'm pushing all these fluids that they're recommending. And I see that her blood pressure is starting to go up. And by the next morning, she's pretty pussy. Um, she's retaining water clearly. And uh, she she wouldn't, didn't want the water, which tells me her kidneys weren't ready. And so I told the team the next morning, like, I'm just not really comfortable when she doesn't want to drink and I'm forcing this and I'm seeing these other signs. And they tell me, oh, that was a charting error. So you should not be giving her fluids unless she's asking for them. So why did I have to bring it up to the team when someone noticed it was a charting error? Why didn't they come find me and tell me, um, considering that that's a risk to her then needing more dialysis treatment when she's not currently in that place? So I wind up, you know, consulting with a few different medical advocacy groups um, with their patient advocates and speaking with, you know, pharmacists, nurses, doctors, um, and she is starting to accumulate a lot of water weight. Um, uh, she's got maybe six pounds or more. And so um, they tell me about a diuretic that uh, was, you know, considered gentler that they're not bringing up to me, which is called hydrochloric thiazide. Um, and instead of working within an hour, it works in about four to six hours. Um, so if we're getting to a place where we feel that we probably do need to move some of this water off of her body, um, that that would be an option. And so I work with the doctors to do that. They also let me know that her potassium levels were high. And so, um, in order to get those down, they wanted to use, uh, something, they wanted to use Lasix to start, which I was just like, no. Um, and so, uh, they offered Kaxalate and it was nice to work with a patient advocate that, uh, actually informed me that, um, that can also lower your calcium levels. So if those are too low, that could affect your heart. Um, and I brought that up to them because a couple of days earlier, my daughter had been begging for milk. She doesn't like milk. So I even said to them, could that indicate anything? So when I brought it up to the night resident, um, I was, they were very dismissive. Um, but I think that, you know, my pushing back a bit by saying, you know, this could affect her heart if it gets too low. Um, they did eventually come to me and say, oh, you're right. It can affect the heart. Let's give her some calcium supplementation. So, um, you know, again, like I'm, I'm bringing these things up to the doctors. Um, 
So uh, we decided to move forward with the chaoxalate and the hydrochlorothiazide. Um, her output has increased. Um, so I'm a little nervous, like, are we going to make her kidneys angry again? But we proceed. And um, around the same time, a patient advocate had recommended asking about metabolic acidosis, and she was moving in that direction. So we also started sodium bicarbonate. Um, and we actually saw her kidneys continue to open up and to get more urine output, which was great. But then it was a Sunday and um, it started to become like rapid output. And within 36 hours, it was like she was losing all the weight that she had gained within a short period of time. And she's four years old. She only weighed, I think, 36 pounds before this. Um, and so it was starting to get concerning. And they came to me, um, you know, she's losing about a liter every three to four hours. Uh, and they came to me and told me, we want to challenge her kidney. So we're going to have her drink a liter and a half of fluid. Now I, I went on to speak with a patient advocate that said that would be about five liters for an adult. That's a lot of fluid. Um, so I'm pushing this fluid on her all day. And um, I'm also, you know, seeing this mass output and she winds up that evening throwing up the water that I'm giving her, but she's begging me for more water. She's so thirsty. And so, um, again, speaking with an advocate, um, they recommended maybe discussing an IV or the fact that they have lowered her sodium bicarbonate that day uh, from four times a day to twice a day. So to discuss those with the night doctor, um, which is a resident. And I did, and there was a lot of pushback about how she could wait until the morning um, and uh, to feed her ice chips. So I fed her ice chips until four in the morning. And then around five, she went to bed and that's very unusual for her. So I said something and she responded something odd about um, her brother or her dad. And I got up and I walked around the side of the bed to where she was looking up into the left. So I was standing up into the left, but her eyes were darting back and forth. And so, um, you know, she was having a seizure. Um, and so, you know, I got the nurses, um, Ativan was administered and she was taken for a CT. Um, and, uh, um, so the neurology team concluded that, you know, the back of her brain was a little bit blurry, um, but that she was responding well um, uh, with uh, pushing and pulling, lifting her legs, things like that in the bed. But uh, she hadn't slept all night. She was given out of man and it's very bright. So she was keeping her eyes closed and they expressed, you know, we'll need to evaluate her eyes eventually. Um, we can let her maybe move out of this. But an ICU doctor came out and um, started talking about how, her blood pressure was high, which we had known it had gotten high the week before. They did offer a blood pressure medication, but hydrochlorothiazide also lowers blood pressure. So, um, you know, I had concerns about administering both of those things. And if it gets too low, I wasn't really getting a, a response that I liked. So they gave her blood pressure medication after the seizure. And they, uh, we were told that we needed to rule out a stroke. In order to do that, we would need to intubate her. And um, uh, she would, that would be for the anesthesia for the MRI. And so we're only cons consenting to intubation for anesthesia for an MRI. Um, when they uh, had completed the MRI, they concluded that it was potentially a condition called press, which is where there's uh, rapid expansion and um, compression of the um, of the blood vessels in the back of the brain. I had a friend who had had press after she gave birth, and it resolved on its own. Um, but they weren't extubating her, which was concerning because the doctors are coming to talk to us and we're saying, okay, well, when is, when is she going to wake up? Um, now when she had been throwing up fluids, I started to get a little concerned, like she could, she could aspirate on all the water that she's been throwing up. Um, and so, you know, how they get on a ventilator starts to make me pretty anxious. Um, and eventually, you know, they come in and they say, well, 
the compression from the um, ventilator will, you know, move fluid out of her lungs because she does appear that she has some fluid in her lungs. Um, and, uh, you know, we just need some time. So maybe this afternoon. And then it gets to the evening. And, um, you know, I knew that ventilators are more of a stopgap. They're not really a treatment Uh so I confirmed that by speaking with a patient advocate who's a pediatric respiratory therapist. Um, and so I expressed to them, hey, I'm concerned uh, because I'm not seeing the needle move at all on this. And what are the next steps? Like, what, where is this going? And I get a lot of pushback about, you know, um, it, it just takes time. Uh, she's good for the night. She, they, you know, the doctor says to me, uh, you know, I'm not concerned about where she is right now. She is good for the night. Um, and eventually that would be, uh, you know, we would be looking at diuretics um, and that would be an evolving conversation, I was told. Um, but again, she's good for the night. Um, and so I told the nurse uh, and the doctor that I wanted to be notified of any new medications that she was given. Um, I have a very high tolerance to sedation. So she is not fully sedated. She's grabbing out the tube. She's crying. They're giving boluses and uh, PRNs of Ativan, fentanyl, and um, more propofol. And um, she's on Prepacidex. And, you know, this is just also uh, concerning to me, um, but also to see her in distress. And so they, they wake me up for a diaper change when they have to administer more fentanyl um, and wake me up for one with Ativan. And I, I declined uh, Tylenol because she had just been given fentanyl at that time. They said it was for pain. I was like, you just gave her fentanyl. So, um, and then around 4 a.m. I wake up and I say, you know, wow, you know, helping with diaper change. Wow, her, her heart rate is really high. And the nurse says, yes, I just have to give her some blood pressure medication as well. And I said, well, what changed? And he said, well, we just gave her the Lasix about an hour ago. So I'm pretty upset um, because, A, right, that was supposed to be an evolving conversation. So why wouldn't you come and discuss it with the parents, um, even if it's the middle of the night, to say, hey, there's been some changes. We want to, you know, we want to continue to, you know, uh, maybe move this fluid and this is the way we think we should do it. And B, why would you administer a medication without the consent of the parent. I'm pretty sure that's not legal. And then additionally, if they had looked at her chart, they would have seen that we were using, we were working with the nephrology team to use an alternative, the hydrochlorothiazide, as the diuretic of our choice. Um, so I'm very upset because I don't want her kidneys to wind up not functioning, right? I'm looking at the long-term risk of dialysis as well. Um, and so, uh, you know, I let the staff know that I'm going to be filing grievances. Um, and that's where things kind of take a real turn for the worse, you know, within 36 hours, they're calling CPS. Um, but that, that day, the day of where that happened early morning, um, you know, they've installed, uh, three new IVs in her, um, for medications and blood work. And they had mandated when she was, um, uh, ventilated to monitor her blood pressure with an art line, even though I was concerned about it. And later within two days it stops working and they have to use a blood pressure cuff. But initially they're saying it's the most accurate way to monitor her blood pressure minute by minute, second by second. Um, so I just don't want all these things in her body that are causing it alarm. Um, and the doctors bring up a, a pick line and I said, you know, I'm, I'm not comfortable with that right now. You've just given her three new IVs. Um, and, uh, we, 
you know, can discuss that my husband and I, um, and, uh, you know, maybe come to a conclusion when it's necessary. And they said, well, that could be in the middle of the night. That could be an emergent situation. And I said, you know, well, that's my, that's my job. I'm her mom. And they said, well, you could have minutes to decide. And I said, okay, I'm her mom. Like we'll, we'll decide in the, in that, in those minutes um, when that happens. And the neurology team comes to speak to us at the same time. And they want to, as they're waiting for propofol, start an anti-seizure medication. Um, now the neurologist at the time tells me, which, you know, has later been a different neurologist tells me something different, but, um, they did say like it can impact kidney function. Um, and so, uh, you know, I wanted to speak with patient advocates about potentially a different anti-seizure medication, uh, like Lamictal instead of Keppra. Um, so I'm asking to speak with the doctors after having had that pick line conversation, um, the next morning and, uh, and I'm wanting to speak with them primarily about the, about the anti-seizure medication and they're not coming to the room and CPS shows up. And they said that they're there because we have declined a pick line, which would be a life-saving measure, and that we have declined a uh, anti-seizure medication. Now, I said, you can see by the nurse's text messages to the doctor, I'm asking to speak with her, and that's because I want to talk about an alternative medication like Lamictal. But I had never mentioned Lamictal to the nurse. And so when they go to talk to the doctors, they bring the doctors in, and the doctor said, well, I didn't come in because I had to go talk to the neurologist about the Lamictal. And I said, that's, that's not true because the... CPS is the only one that I've mentioned the word Lamictal to other than the patient advocates I'd spoken to on the phone. So, um, you know, I'm starting to notice that people are doing a lot of lying. Um, and, you know, I bring up that these two things were already spoken about in a way where it was not that we were denying something that we would address later. Um, but, uh, you know, the doctors reply that, um, you know, well, it's, it's everything. It's everything with you two. Um, me and my husband. And, um, you know, uh, we want to start a different diuretic. It's not, you know, this one is not going to be effective. It's too slow acting. Um, and so I bring up Diarel is technically a thiazide. And because she has responded well to hydrochlorothiazide, maybe we can use that. And they say no right off the bat, but they don't really justify why. Um, and then I want to test her for infection because it seems like they're trying to say that the fluid is getting worse, that it, or at least it's not improving. And so, you know, when it comes to pneumonia and other infections, I want to know. And they say no, because they don't want to throw any old antibiotic at it. Um, and, you know, antibiotics at any system, which at this point, she's been so heavily drugged with the sedatives because she's never fully sedated. Um, so, uh, you know, we feel forced to comply. We're told that within, you know, by the next morning, CPS would be following up. And um, when they come to install the pick line, and they tell us that she has a fever, so she has an active infection, and that it is, you know, hospital policy that they do not install a pick line in a child with an active infection because they're at risk of sepsis. And I can't remember if it was blood clots as well, but um, that we would be assuming that risk and do we consent. And so obviously our hands were tied and we were coerced into that decision. Um, but we we complied. At the same time, a resident came and said that the doctors had agreed that we could start diarel as the diuretic, the next the next step up in diuretic. And I made her confirm. I made her confirm that that was, that was something they would agree to, um, right? So it's kind of moving a step up towards the Lasix. It's fast acting, but it's not, it's not Lasix. Um, and so uh, the next morning, we get a call from CPS, even though we've done all those things, and we're told that we have a hearing at 1.30 because we are not in compliance. Um, and I said, well, her medical record will prove otherwise. Can you, can you contact the doctors? Um, and they say they will. And at 11.30, they 
tell me, you know, to text them my email because my hearing is still at 130 that I'm not in compliance. And so I'm getting upset and I'm saying, I want to speak with the doctor. Um, and uh, right before the hearing, they messaged me, we, we, we got confirmation you are in compliance and uh, this, the hearing is still on. Um, and so we, you know, go into this CPS hearing without due process. We don't even know at this point, what are we, what are we being charged with? Um, and, uh, you know, they can't court order anything because we're in compliance. So her record will show that. Um, so we weren't properly served and we weren't given due process and concerning things were brought up in that hearing, um, that we could address, but we didn't get the opportunity to, um, because, uh, because we didn't have the, the the access to it, right? So an example being where they're, I believe they're trying to make us look unfit because there's been so much medical mismanagement. Um, and I said I was gonna file a grievance that, um, you know, like an example being um, when they would do diaper changes at night, they would um, use wipes and wipes are, the wipes are cold that we have. Um, and uh, she would wake up if she's at all sedated and she would be in distress. She would cry. She would grab at the tubes. Um, you know, uh, she was she was upset, clearly upset. And that is distressing, right? It's traumatic for her. It's distressing as a parent. And so I said, can we um, just wipe her every other time? It's just urine. It's a disposable diaper. It absorbs it. So, um, you know, to keep her to keep her calm, to keep her, you know, somewhat sedated. And in the hearing, it was brought up that I was requesting to leave her soiled after diaper changes. Um, so obviously, there's you know there's lying and and um, really trying to attack our character. Right. Um, so they weren't able to issue a court order because we were in compliance, but the judge issued some sort of minute order where if we do not consent to life-saving measures, they can override us and we would have to be present in court again. Um, but that's very vague. Uh, so given that we didn't get due process, that we weren't able to address uh, the things that were brought up in court, um, you know, we uh, have the potential to be able to issue a stay with CPS if we can appeal, but California requires a very um specific type of lawyer uh we did have a lawyer on the call but he hadn't completed the um the course that's required for dependence court like a, a course specifically for dependence court so um so did they so got it, hope if they got into what the root cause of her problem was initially is that everybody discovered that's the thing about hus it's funny when you get here they say like um you know that uh, uh the syndrome is um you know just this like the, the E. coli is just going it, to, it'll just have to resolve itself. Like it has to, you know, work itself out. Um, but the syndrome itself, they only have protocols for, it. they don't really have like a, a treatment, right? They have, they have a way to potentially just kind of um, maybe try to slow it down in hopes that it'll, it'll reverse itself, but they don't have a treatment. So they don't know what causes HUS. And when we got here, they were all about maybe genetic testing. And, you know, I, my mom had breast cancer when I was young and I remember in my twenties, uh, getting told like, maybe I should get a mastectomy if I had those genes. So I didn't want to go, go that route at the time. I wanted to focus on her healing, but it, it was very clear to me that they, that they didn't, they didn't really know. They don't know what, what would have my son be following and what has my daughter her kidneys impacted other than, you know, my suspicion is that her sensitivity, her nervous system operates differently. She has a different constitution, but other than that, it's really unknown. Um, and so, uh, well, it says you know, HUS occurs as a complication of diarrheal infection, usually 
you know, E. coli. Right. Um, so. But they can't um, explain the mechanism of the complication. Like yeah. why? Why? What is the body? It's just, it's just me. Like if it was like, if, you know, I had E. coli going on in my body, that's where we're supposed to have E. coli in our system, but it's a very right. small amount. So the good bacteria is obviously we need to flood that. So if like for me, I'd be thinking uh, we have a nano silver that I would, I would be taking the nano silver that could also be nebulized, you know, through the, into the respiratory system and then feed the patient or your daughter kefir. It has like 50 mm -hmm. to 80 strains mm -hmm. of bacteria. It's just start putting bacteria in there and then putting a, a nano silver, not colloidal, but nano silvers in there to, to start balancing out these bacteria and put the E. coli back into check. And, right. you know, um, you know how she got that there's i'm thinking of other things too but like i said i'm not a doctor i'm no, i don't prescribe or diagnose but right. that's and something that i would that's how i right and she's you know she's one of those kids that i've always joked she's had like an amazing palate like she eats her favorite food has been sauerkraut since she started eating food um so it was just so so odd to me she's because like i said she's never been sick for her to have this more extreme response this syndrome right um was was just a, you know, like how how did how did this happen? Like, what's contributing here? What what mechan by what mechanism? Which they can't really explain. Do you, you, do know? you guys drink? Do you guys drink tap water? No, our water is filtered, so we have a whole house filter. Is it reverse osmosis or is it big? Well, it's reverse osmosis. It's through um, gosh, I can't remember what that company is. It starts with an R. Um, That's okay. Yeah. Um, but it's pretty it's a pretty good quality so um when they asked like where we even got the e coli from the only thing i could think is like a lake but you know because my son did also have diarrhea so obviously there was something right was, uh, an exposure of some sort um that was maybe beyond what the the system normally has you know um, so yeah, but uh, you know the story goes on a little bit. I'll just give you a couple. Yeah, so we have we, we have about ten minutes left on the show. So okay, perfect. Just, uh, yeah, just tell you and, and where she share, is. Share people how you can people can help out. They like right. So um, you know it got to a place with the um, with the sedatives where nothing was working. She got delirium from the fentanyl. She got um, itching to the point of thrashing with, uh, you know, the uh, morphine. Um, and it's not safe to have her innovated. She is literally thrashing back and forth with the itching. They're trying to dose um, Adorax to counter itching um, and then and then bolus her morphine to try to get her out. Um, and they're talking about extubation, but they want to wait just a little longer to get more fluid off of her lungs. Um, and so I'm hearing that they're actually setting her up to fail, to be able to say, well, we're trying. She couldn't breathe on her own, you know, um, because how are they continuing to justify her intubation when um, she's actually being put at risk? Um, and so uh, it was a horrible, horrible night, the night leading up to, up to extubation. Um, and, uh, you know, it got to the point where they they really pushed me to give her an antipsychotic, which when your child's eyes are rolling in different directions and they're, you know, clearly in delirium, uh, you know, you'll kind of do anything to, to try to help. Um, How many so, different drugs has she been given? I mean, at this point, it's well over a dozen. Well over a dozen. So, and then, they're, the you know, the, the PRN, the Ativan, it's, just, it's constant. And it's constant, different blood pressure medications, different 
Um, you know, and, and, and when I try to address spacing these out again, like I get a lot of pushback about, well, they'll list, they'll list any side effect for drugs. Like it's going to be dozens of side effects and things, but these, these drugs aren't studied in conjunction with one another. Um, and so, uh, you know, spacing them out, lets me evaluate like what is happening here and it, and it helps the doctors, um, but they don't want to do that. And so, um, so anyway, they do, uh, attempt extubation, um, uh, and she is actually able to um, maintain BiPAP. Um, they're, you know, the constant threat is they might have to reintubate her immediately, right? Like, so she's us. off the she's off the machine. She's off the ventilator. So, um, and I did put for them to wean her off the sedation. Now, of course, they don't want withdrawals, but when your eyes are rolling in different directions, you are not going to be able to breathe properly. You're not, um, and so. Uh, she did, you know, rip out their feeding tube, at which point I said, you know, could we do TPN to get her some nutrients as a signal of safety to her body? And they wanted to hold her down and do the feeding tube again. Um, and I, you know, pushed back and they said, okay. And then I asked, well, where's the feeding tube or where's the TPN by last night? And um, they said they weren't going to, uh, they weren't going to give people at TPN. Yeah. TPN is, um, so it's, basically nourishment through an IV. So it has lipids and nutrients. I mean, I'm sure the quality is not good, but neither is what they give her in the feeding tube with the formula, you know? So, um, you know, she has NTHFR. I'm talking with someone about folate versus folic acid in the, the hospital. That's just not their, you know, that's not their repertoire. So it's unfortunate, but right. I just want some signal of safety to her body. And they're telling me, well, we're not going to give her anything until, you know, we put the feeding tube back in. So it's kind of setting up a case against me still to look as though I'm denying her food. Um, and so, yeah, I just feel like there's um, genuine like malpractice that's occurring. Uh, and I'm, I am concerned for her. Now they're, you know, I think getting to a place where this information is becoming very public. And so they are willing to try her on CPAP today. Uh, uh, but, you know, it's again, we're, you know, she could wind up on BiPAP for a week, you know, the feeding tube's going to be in for a while, um, all of that. And so we're looking for resources to, you know, get her, get her home ideally, um, but really get her the care that we feel is much more trustworthy um, and does have global family's best interests at heart. Like my daughter is in a state of delirium. She's terrified from being ventilated. She can't be properly sedated and they want to remove her mother, remove her family. Um, as a form of, of getting her healed and safe, that's absurd to me, the, the length that they would go to. So, um, you know. It's almost like, child, you should have called Child Protective Service. They should have came up with a SWAT team and removed her from the hospital. Right, right. Except, you know, it's interesting in that hearing, they just assumed, like I actually brought up when I was briefly allowed to testify, that Lasix is actually, it carries risk of kidney um, injury and kidney failure. And I could tell that they were surprised. And that's because nobody in that hearing was a medical professional, right? So they were assuming that it was helping her kidneys when actually it's putting a lot of stress on her kidneys in an attempt to resolve whatever's going on with the ventilator. Um, what, state are, what state are you guys in? California. California, okay. Yeah, so, so that's where we are now. And we're just looking for resources because even if we want to move for care, um, you know, they can justify anything as a life-saving measure with CPS, and we don't want to wind it back in another hearing. Um, and so I want to look at, I, I don't know if this is the case, but I, if they specialize in this at all, because I know they deal with autism and cancers and stuff like that, but there's the Sophia Institute on Washington State with Dr. Klinghart. That might be 
be an option. Um, there's also, I don't know what they're doing because I haven't been there, but Optimal Health Institute is in California. Okay. And there's also, um, you know, there's not that they would be able to help, but they might be able to know somebody to help that's also in California. Is um, a Dr. Uh, Alan Goldhammer. He runs the True North Clinic. Okay. And I can give you this information after we get out. That'd be great. That's That'd just people that are, you know, good people that maybe their clinic doesn't do it, but they would know somebody. They're in that, that sphere, you know, and they would yeah. be able to give you yeah. a referral at least to somebody else. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so now it's that you and your husband, um, Billy, are at the hospital with your other two children, young kids. And um, and so what what do you, what's the message you want to get out to people right now or how can people yeah, I mean, you know, brought up in that same hearing was that, you know, they notified security when I got upset. And so I actually haven't left my daughter's bedside. I'm worried they won't let me back in. Um, and so, you know, we're just looking for help for, you know, the legal resources we need because we do have the ability to issue a stay. We just need, you know, help doing that um, in order to get her into treatment that we feel um, we feel safer with and and really get her to heal and then getting how our whole family can heal from this situation you know even with her weaned from the um sedatives like the light in my daughter's eyes gone out um and they keep you know telling me that um you know she's so brave she's such a good girl she's so compliant um and i said to them she shakes her head yes because even when you say i'm gonna do this okay and she said, no, you do it anyway. You just hold her down or you medicate her. So um, that's not her being a good girl, you know. Um, so we all we all need to heal from this. Awesome. Um, it's unbelievable. So here's the deal, guys, is that like when I was talking to Hope early on, I was asking her, is there some way we can donate to you or give you money? And she's like, look, I don't want this to be. I don't want people to think at all that I'm here asking for money. I More importantly, I want to get this information out to the public just so they know what's going on because this is not going to be an isolated event. We know this is happening. This kind of stuff is happening across uh, hospitals all across America. You know, you have um, Scott Shahara, who's, you know, he was a retired business guy. His, um, his daughter, Grace was, you know, she was murdered um, in hospitals and he has cases out. He's got freaking, uh, you know, billboards he's paid for. He's raising money. He started a podcast. He said he's never worked so hard as entire life. Right, trying to get this information out. It's just here's another story, and there's I've I've been around so much of this in the last twelve years, being in this industry, living this lifestyle, nine years in the industry. Um, so you guys, that so what we found out was is like not only do we want to get this information out, but I'm just I'm asking you guys that if you can help her and her husband and her family with some financially. They really don't even have anything set up right now, but Remnant Remnant Nursing is helping them. I'll put a link down below, but it's remnantnursing.org. That's R-E-M is in Mary, N is in Nancy, A-N is in Nancy, T, nursing.org, remnantnursing.org. And then you can scroll down and you can also send them an email. Um, you can click on their contact page and then or just send them a direct email to client services at nurse freedomnetwork.org that's client services at nursefreedomnetwork.org and just say hey i, I you know just inquire and say i want to i want to help out um hope and billy and their daughter autumn and help them get um the uh um i guess you know get the uh judiciary 
help that you guys are going to be able to need. You need to hire some lawyers that are going to be on your side, which is hard, hard to find. That's that's hard to find too, is finding a lawyer that's not corrupt. Well, it's just the yeah. world we live in today. But um, yeah. anyway, remnantnursing.org and email them at clientservices at nursefreedomnetwork.org and um, they'll help you uh, connect and help out with um, Hope and her family. So anything else that you'd like to say? Um, no, just, yeah, continue to send prayers for our family. And, you know, I know some people have been calling the hospital and I am grateful for that. I want them to know that Autumn's story is being watched, that we are not in a vacuum um, and that we just want transparency on her care. Yeah. And I'll also put that information down there too. So you guys can actually call the hospital and say, Hey, we're behind, um, Hope and Billy and their family and we're watching you and just let them know that, you know, and you know, if you guys don't do your job correctly and you keep, you know, creating all this chaos for this family that, uh, there will be consequences for it. So please reach out to the hospital and let them know, um, you don't have to be a dick about it. But, you know, we're not asking for doxing. Yeah, we're not asking for doxing. Yeah, we don't, we don't need that. You just need to let people know. It's like just just do your job. Take care of this family. Help them get their daughter back home. That's what we need. And we're and just say we're watching. You know, we're watching. Yeah. We're, we we got an eye on you. And and, um, and that's just the way it is. So working class people standing up is the only way we're going to be able to push back and get um, you know our freedoms back in this country. So I want to thank you for um, coming on here. Hope um, I know it's yeah. not easy. You're stuck in a hospital you're in a bathroom doing an interview with me i'm sure you're gonna be doing a lot more interviews like this um but you know you piss off a mom look out right that's that's the deal so your your story getting out there and you're doing everything you can to help your daughter probably going completely out of your comfort zone to do these these conversations and these talks and so i really applaud you and your uh, uh your resilience and what you're doing and just keep at it and our love and support and our prayers and thoughts go to you and your family and we will help you get the information out to as many people as we can. Thank you so much. All right. And for those of you listening around the world, thank you so much for tuning in. Um, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope it touched your heart and that you will reach out to the links that I provided and uh, give them some support. Call this hospital. I'll put all that information in the, down below in the, in the description so you can reach out, make a phone call, help them out. Say, even if, they, if not, not a financial donation, just take a moment and send some energy their way, send a prayer their way. And um, I appreciate you guys for uh, getting this message out to as many people as possible so we can all help open our family. Until next time, change yourself, change your world, and I'll talk to you guys soon. Bye, friend. Thanks for listening again to The Health Hero Show. I'm your host, Tim James. And remember, change yourself, change your world, and we'll see you again on the next episode. Talk to you soon. You have just listened to The Health Hero Show with Tim James. <laughs>